Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us as we continue to unpack how some of the best performers in the world intentionally set their mind to be their best. But before we introduce today's guest, we want to share a company that we partnered with at the podcast. So Two Betty's is a snack company, but they're not your typical snack company. So their tagline is for goodness sake, and they are really in the snack business to try to shift and change how it is that we consume our snacks. So they've got chocolate chunk rounds and maple cinnamon rounds. They're these two packs. They look like mini donuts, but they're anything but donuts. So I like to eat them with a hard boiled egg in the morning and it gives me natural energy and protein that I need to start my day. They're terrific snacks. I grab them on the go. Uh, I have a busy schedule just like I know many of you do. And I really find them to be useful throughout my day, but especially in the morning. So try them for yourself. And we're actually going to give you a 15% off discount at the checkout with the promo code intentional. So you can go over to twobetties.com. That's the number two and the word Betty's and punch in the promo code intentional. And you're going to get 15% off your first order. We also are very excited to launch our Patreon homepage. So you can go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the podcast. If you support us with $5 a month or $10 a month, you're actually going to get a shout out on the show, which we are going to do right now. Now, so Peace Players is a nonprofit that I've been involved with. Uh, they do amazing work all over the world. They just launched a domestic program, but they're in uh, areas like Israel, South Africa, Ireland, Cyprus, and they're really all about the power of sport and using the power of sport to unite, educate, and inspire young people to hopefully create a more peaceful world. And couldn't we use some more peace in this world today? So they offer sport programming, peace education, and leadership to develop those living in communities of conflict. And certainly we have some communities in, in conflict in the United States, but we have that all over the world. So they try to bridge divides. They bring people together through the game of basketball, which is a, a game and a sport that I'm extremely passionate about. And I've seen Peace Players in action. I actually went on a trip to Israel with them and saw the work that they did in one of the most conflicted areas that we have in the world. And I've seen their work in Baltimore, which is another place that has some challenges. So Peace Players is doing amazing work. A lot of the guests that you've listened to on this show have come from my work with Peace Players. So go over to peaceplayers.org. Definitely contribute if you're able or just find out a little bit more about what they're doing domestically and what they're doing internationally. Uh, you will be glad you did. And thanks to Peace Players for all of the work that you continue to do around the world. So without further ado, I'm excited to cue the music and tell you about this week's guest. And during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. 
thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. So excited to have you with us as we dive deep with intentional performers to find out how they are setting their mind for both preparation and performance so they can handle big situations, environments, pressure, and be their best when it really matters most. And today we chat with somebody who is literally living day to day under hostile, rugged, very tense environments. Chief Melissa Hyatt joined the Baltimore Police Department in 1997 and since has served that community immensely. And her resume, which I'll go over a little bit with you, uh, includes working in SWAT, working with the police commissioner, working uh, with the executive office in the Southeastern District. She's really done a variety of things within the Baltimore Police Department. And as she'll share with you, she's been involved with police since she was a young age and her dad also served in that capacity. Her current role is Chief of Special Ops. And it was pretty cool. We recorded this episode from the Baltimore headquarters, their police department. And I got to interact with some of the lieutenants and sergeants that are under her command under this special operations division. And these people are dealing with all kinds of special events that take place in the city of Baltimore. And if you know about Baltimore and their history, they certainly have a lot of things that can flare up and that can occur within their city limits. So Chief Melissa Hyatt and these people that serve uh, with her are in charge of making sure that those go off smoothly and that they don't have any major incidents. So if you follow the news over the last couple of years, you certainly know that Baltimore has been a hot spot for some of the things that are going on in our society. And we will certainly get into uh, what is going on in our country right now with police and also with some of the athletes that are protesting the way that the system is currently and what is going on in our country. So Melissa shares her perspective and I'm excited to share her perspective with you. But more importantly than that, I love this conversation because she's going to share what she has learned in her training, how she thinks about her mindset, and how she has to keep an even keel and deal with emotions when she's under these intense environments that require decision-making. We're going to get into some of the challenges that exist for police officers, especially what is required of them is obviously a very difficult and challenging job. We also are going to talk about some of the work she's done with the Special Olympics and something that's very passionate for her. But she's been involved with a number of things in Baltimore, including being in charge of the Baltimore Marathon, uh, helping out at the Army-Navy game. They have the Grand Prix. Uh, they opened up a casino. So she's done a number of things to make sure that those events go off smoothly. Uh, she has a Master of Science in Management, and we will talk about um, leadership and management and the differences between those and the similarities of those. She also attended the 250th session of the FBI National Academy and the United Nations Police Commanders course. So she's very well versed, very well education on, educated on conflict management and how to lead and how to defuse potentially escalating and violent situations. Uh, Chief Hyatt completed the University of Maryland 
University College Police Leadership Program, and she also has been honored by the Baltimore Sun Magazine as 50 Women to Watch in 2013, and was also part of Baltimore Magazine's 40 Under 40. So Chief Hyatt is a dynamo. Uh, her being a female is something we're also going to get into in a very testosterone-driven world. And she's just a very intelligent, smart, engaging, friendly, but also no-nonsense, badass woman. And I just have the ultimate respect for her. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Chief Melissa Hyatt. Chief Thank you so much for giving us some time today. We're in Baltimore uh, at the police headquarters. I've never broadcasted one of these, luckily, I think, uh, from a police headquarters. And I'm just really excited to chat with you. We've got to know each other a little bit. Uh, but this is going to be fun because we can just sit, hopefully, in silence. Hopefully, no emergencies happen during this time and find out a little bit about you and your mindset and how you think about the world. I wanted to start by finding out why law enforcement? How did you get into this? When was this something that you thought you'd be interested in? And just give us a little insight into what led you down this path. Sure. So I'm a second generation Baltimore police officer. My father spent 31 years in the Baltimore Police Department. And my parents told me as soon as I could talk that I said I wanted to be a police officer. So um, something I've wanted to do ever since I was very small. So with dad being in it, were you around it growing up? Were you watching him? Were you looking up to him? What role did he have in, in your life? My father was always my role model growing up, and I remember sitting in the evening watching him polish his shoes and put all of the medals on his uniform and get everything ready for the next day, and it always had a strong impression on me. So I really paid attention to him during his career, and I think I had a police radio scanner when I was like five years old, so I think it was kind of embedded in me. Was there ever anything else that caught your interest that you thought like, no, that's actually what I would rather do? No. Um, since I was small, I always obviously wanted to be a police officer. There was a period of time when some people tried to kind of push me gently to explore other options, like you know, becoming an attorney or a veterinarian. But I always wanted to be a police officer. And then when I got a little bit older, I knew I wanted to join the SWAT team. So those were the only two things. SWAT team. Go into that. What was it about that that caught your interest in your, your eye? It was always exciting when I was young, obviously looking at it from that perspective. And then it just became a goal for me once I got into the police department. So it took me about three and a half years to get on the team. But it was just something that was exciting. It was challenging. I was interested in you know, having to be in extraordinary physical shape, being able to, you know, be proficient in certain skills and things like that. So one of the things that interests me when I do these interviews is people often say it was challenging. And so I wanted to do that. Why go towards challenge? Like, why is that exciting to you? I think it's just part of my personality. If there's something that throughout the course of my life and now my career, something that somebody tells me that either I can't do or they wouldn't think I would be able to do either because of my size or my gender. It just kind of inspires me to want to do it even more. Give people, because they can't see you, so how tall are you? Um, and, and then from a gender standpoint, I'm curious, how many people uh, walked down that path with you going towards SWAT uh, when you were in the training and, and going through that process? So I'm 5'2". I'm definitely on the smaller end. And I can tell you on our team, it was mostly guys who were, you know, six foot, whatever, and I never really even kind of like like the duckling that's, you know, the one duckling that's among a bunch of ducklings that look completely different. I never really paid attention to how different I was. 
until I watched a news segment that had shown our team leaving a house after a barricade. And you could see all of these helmets and, um, you know, all of our faces were covered. And you could see tall, 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 little, and then back to tall. And that's when I realized, I was like, wow, I'm really a lot shorter than everybody else. So Was part of the reason that you never even thought about it because you grew up around it and you were just, it was normal for you to take that path that you didn't think it was abnormal? You know, I think absolutely that was one thing. I was really fortunate. I had a lot of support from my parents growing up. And, you know, they, anytime there was something I wanted to do, they never, there were never any excuses. It was just kind of go for it. And especially I look at my mother from, you know, not being stopped by gender restrictions or things like that. So when I see something or when I saw something I was interested in doing, it wasn't the fact that it was not normal for someone of my gender or my stature to do. It was just that was the thing I was going to do. I was interested in it, and it didn't matter what was, what obstacles were in the way. I was going to overcome them. Were you carrying any of I'm a woman and watch what I'm going to do? Or was it more like, hey, I'm just one of the guys, and I can compete at this in the same way that they can? Yeah, I've never really, the whole gender, you know, using it as an inspiration or an excuse, it was never really that. I just never really saw myself as being different. It was just, you know, we're all police. This is what I want to do. And whatever I need to do to get to my the point that I'm able to do it and to achieve it is what I'm going to do. You mentioned no excuses in your parents instilling that in you. What are some other values that you think that they instilled in you? I would say just really being persistent and also having a lot of empathy for other people. I think that those are two really strong things. And the persistence piece, you know, if you can't do it the first time, keep pushing until you get there. So I was very fortunate with that. And then, you know, empathy. They, ever since I was little, you know, I was always volunteering, whether it was at a nursing home, reading to someone elderly who didn't have any family, working in an animal shelter, just always doing things to make sure that I could remember really how fortunate I was and what I had in my own life and, you know, feeling for people that didn't have those same things. It's interesting because when I think of persistence, I think of grit and grit has been studied and is a big psychological term that people are using now. Um, And the definition that this woman, Angela Duckworth, uses is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Um, And so everyone's talking about being gritty. How do we get our kids to be grittier? And I think what they miss with just isolating grit is that other piece which you're talking about, which is either gratitude or empathy, it's a little softer than the grit and determination. And I think if we just focus on just you're going to do it at whatever it takes and, you know, and we don't we don't also balance that with a little softness or a little um, like gratitude or empathy. I think we're missing the boat. What do you, what do you think about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think I, I definitely think it's a combination when I think when you say grit and, you know, we talk about perseverance and I think that there's a a big piece of that that's not being soft not you know accepting excuses and if you fall down get back up suck it up and keep going but also that point of when you do fall down that somebody helps dust you off a little bit kind of pats you on the back and gives you a little bit of encouragement so I think there's kind of a combination between the two and I think that's where that empathy piece really comes in and especially where I am now in my career where I'm at the place that, you know, currently in my agency, I'm the highest ranking female. So now there are others, whether I'm looking at other females or I'm looking at other younger officers in their career with goals and, you know, sometimes getting discouraged about things, about, you know, kind of that tough love combination where they need to have 
the, you know, use the term grit, they need to have that within them to, to persevere, to keep going. But sometimes they also need somebody to just stop and listen and just feel for them for a minute and then encourage them to keep going. So you're now getting into leadership and management. And I know you've got a lot of background in management and leadership. Talk about how you define leadership and how you think about leadership. Hmm, that's a good one. I think I, I look at leadership and I think I've seen both leadership and management and they're such different things. So for me, you know, management is somebody that's in an executive role or in some kind of supervisory role and they're pushing things forward from that position. Whereas leadership is, I think it takes a lot of character to really be a leader and it's somebody that can put themselves in the position and really feel that's where that empathy piece comes in. The people that they're leading, having some understanding and not really forgetting where you came from as you're driving people to do their work, you know, not forgetting where you came from, that you were one of them and remembering the things that you thought while you were one of them and the type of, I hate to use the word leadership while I'm defining it, but remembering when you looked at the people that were supervising you, that were in those leadership roles and the things that I, I wished that I'd seen or in the good leaders, the things that I did see, you know, the ones that would really drive the train from the front and whether it was something operational on the street or something more administrative, that they would be part of it and they would assist. And when there was an emergency or something critical, they would completely take charge of it and there would be a time to have conversations and there would be a time that they would just take over. Yeah, I think the word that you were sort of pulling on is humility um, and the idea of being humble enough to understand what uh, someone might be going through and know where they came from. Uh, when, when I heard you talk about knowing where you came from and your background, that requires humility, but then also balancing that with confidence that when something calls for something, they are going to put themselves out there and say, yes, I'm here and I'm, I'm going to be a person of action and I'm going to do that with confidence. Absolutely. And that person is going to, when they put themselves out there, they recognize the fact that somebody's going to have to make decisions and somebody's going to have to be held accountable for those decisions and they're willing to do that. Awesome. I want to go back to SWAT a little bit. Was there somebody throughout your training that you looked at and you said, that's leadership, uh, that's leadership, leadership in action, or that's what I um, was interested in either being on the side of doing the training or on the side of when you were going through it. I would love to know a little more about what that process looks like and if there were people along the way that you really learned and, and sort of mentored you. So, I, you know, I think I've, I, I suppose I'll say I've had the benefit, but I've had the benefit of people on both sides, people that were very encouraging and then people that weren't so encouraging. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think that's a benefit now that I'm in my position. So when I first started in the agency, there was actually somebody at the time who was on our SWAT team. And I remember being in the police academy and we were doing a little bit of training with the SWAT team at the time. And I remember telling him, you know, I would love to do this. And a bunch of other people had laughed at me. And this particular officer said, if this is what you want to do, then put your mind to it and you'll be able to do it. And I always kept that in the back of my head as I got towards the point in my career where I was able to try out for the team. So I, he, want, I want to pause you. Sure. Who do you think had a bigger impact? The people that laughed at you or the person that said, if you put your mind to it, you can do it? Maybe a combination of the two because I, I'm a little bit bullheaded. So when somebody either laughs or says I can't do it, that usually inspires me to try harder. But having somebody 
you know, seriously tell me, you know, this is something that's achievable for you. This is this is not so unrealistic. It was something that really stuck with me. And in fact, many years later, I worked with him. He left the agency. I worked with him in a different capacity, and he barely even remembered it. And it had kind of come full circle because, you know, it was something that I remembered. And so it was a pretty cool moment when we had the conversation. The reason I was curious about that is I had a coach, a college basketball coach on here, and he said, if you see the silhouette of his coaching style, he wants it to be an arm around the shoulder and a boot in the, in the ass. <laughs> um, and he wants it to be both of those things. And I think a lot of times when we are getting laughed at or told we can't do something, a lot of us have the tendency to just dismiss that. Um, but there is value in those people that are laughing at us because we're telling us we can't do something because there's actually fuel there that we can leverage and we can use. Now, if you're just relying on that, Eventually, there's not going to be anyone there to inspire you that way, and maybe not even inspire the right is the right way. But if there's if there's no one that's criticizing you, and you're just using criticism all the time, and then that doesn't exist, you might run into some trouble. But it takes a special kind of person and a special mindset that when you are in that space to say like, "All right, watch what I'm going to do." Like, "All right, I appreciate it." Like, "Thank you for for doing that." Um, and so it's interesting as we reflect back on our life and I think about people that told me I couldn't do something. Uh, and a lot of times those were some of the people that helped, you know, add a log to my fire. Mm-hmm. Um, my fire is still burning. I, I could have, it's still going to be a solid fire, but like I look at it now and I say like, all right, give me another log. Like, thank you. Um, and, you know, the kids today call them haters. Um, and so like, like we often talk about, and I work with college kids a lot and we often talk about like, all right, how can you actually use that person who you're looking at as your enemy or as someone who's trying to bring you down and actually use that and flip it on its head and, like you said, be bullheaded enough to say, like, all right, watch what I'm going to do. And I think that arm around the shoulder is also so important, and especially in leadership roles. Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of with, with some of the and you, you're making yourself sound old when you say the kids are saying these days. <laughs> but uh, when you know, when you talk about people that are haters or whatever you want to call them. I think that it's good that they do offer kind of just that 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 moment where you can say, yeah, I'm going to do this anyway, but in the same time balancing it out because you don't want to give them so much attention that they don't even deserve. And, and probably the best thing that you can do is when you're successful and whatever it is, whether it's law enforcement or sport or anything else, being able to then, you know, kind of look back and see that person. And, and it's funny, sometimes you find yourself in a position down the road that some of those people who were so critical and negative suddenly they're in positions, whether it's working for you or things like that. But you kind of get to that point that now you've, you've succeeded, you've done the things that you wanted to do, and those people just don't matter anymore. Absolutely. Is there something that you guys do from a psychological standpoint when it comes to training your people and helping them develop mentally uh, and preparing them for what they're going to see when they leave the training? A lot of it goes with a lot of sports mentality. You know, we do a lot of scenario-based training, which is very important in law enforcement. And just like it is in athletics, being able to either, you know, practice and actually play with, you know, practice how you're going to play, and then also be able to visualize things and do tabletop exercises, things like that, to be able to talk things through, you know, what would I do if, and really those scenario-based exercises are so important of course, they never really mirror the real thing, but really it puts people in positions where they feel stressed, they feel pressure, 
and they can get placed in a as real as realistic of an environment as possible. So you're doing mental rehearsal to rehearse. What would you do in this scenario? What would you do in that scenario? And then what does the feedback loop look like uh, once they make the decision and, and go through with it? Walk me through what some of the feedback loop looks like. Well, any kind of standard police training at the end of whatever the training iteration is, there is a debrief where everybody stops the training, comes together, discusses what went well, what needed improvement, and maybe there's a point in time where the people involved in the exercise might have questions. They may not understand what they did well, what they did poorly, and it just really gives a time, an opportunity for an exchange between the trainers, possibly some observers, and then those that are involved with the training. Do you guys talk at all about specific psychological skills like uh, visualization or um, breathing or the way they talk to themselves? Like, um, I'm just curious if, if that's woven into uh, the exercises at all. So there's certain pieces in law enforcement that that's, you know, the breathing and certain skills like that our firearms range. Actually, I just went and qualified, you know, two hours ago for the year. So, so walk me through what that what that looks like. So to qualify uh, for for firearms, walk me through that because I'm pretty ignorant to it. Um, what does that look like and what's the pressure like of, of going through something like that? So basically that is doing several different courses of fire and, you know, from, from different distances, different time speeds. But what's so important with shooting a weapon is just really some very, very basic things that you learn at the beginning of your training or in a basic firearms course, which really concentrate on things like breathing, sight alignment, sight picture, trigger control, just basic skills. And they are very perishable skills. And obviously you do a lot sports related and just like any kind of sport, very perishable. So for a lot of people that aren't proficient shooters or don't go to the range very often, that is definitely something that puts a lot of pressure on them. Um, personally, I find I find it very relaxing. I enjoy it very much. And, you know, like I said, it, it's really one of those things that whether it's the breathing piece or for people that are minimal shooters, being able to do visualization and things like that while they're not at the firearms range, it, it really helps. And I think that visualization piece, whether it's somebody sitting alone and visualizing it or groups of people sitting and talking through scenarios is so important. The majority of what I do is like large events related. So whether it's a planned or an unplanned event, and when our team sits together and when we plan out different parts of the event, that's something that we do fairly often together to talk through what if, what would we do if, and you know, coming up with multiple possibilities of how we would handle things. And that's really important because of course, how you practice is how you play. And we want to make sure that we're prepared when we're in the middle of an event or an operation. If something does start to go in a way that we didn't plan, that we had all of our plans in place up until that point to rely on. So what I'm hearing from you is like, we want to be perfect in our preparation. Like we want to go over every single scenario, but you're in Baltimore. Um, there's probably things that come at you from left field, right field, come just from in all kinds of different directions. So walk me through what it's like once you then you come up with a tactical plan or you come up with a, a game plan, what's your mindset like when you're in it? When you are involved in a hostile situation or, or something that literally is a, the difference between sport and what you do is a matter, it's life and death. And sport likes to use war analogies and, you know, military, you know, likes to use life and death analogies. But the reality for most sports is it's not that case. So I'm curious, like, you're giving us a picture of what your mindset is like in the preparation stage. 
I'm really curious what the mindset is like once you um, are out of the office or out of the table and leave the meeting room. And now that you're in it, what do you, how do you, how do you handle that from a mental standpoint? So for me personally, for most of our, whether it's an event or an incident, I'm generally in the role of incident commander, which means I'm generally running all of the different pieces of it from a command and control level. And I know that the person in that position really sets the pace for everyone else. So if I'm not calm and I'm very excited, then everyone around me is going to be excited. So I think to begin with, it's really important for two things, to be calm and to be decisive. How do you set your mind to be calm? You know, that's a great question. And I I don't really know. I, I guess I never really thought about it. But I I often find that the more things start to unfold, the calmer I get. And I think maybe some of that's, they're just some people that are just wired that way. Um, For me, when... Were your parents like that? That's a great question. I I don't really know. I I don't really know where that comes comes from. Um, I can remember getting in trouble when I was younger, so I would say not necessarily so when when they were yelling at me. But, uh, you know, I think that it's just one of those things that the the higher up you get in your career and the more unfolding situations that you've had to manage that you really see the importance of, first of all, you can't think straight when you're not calm. And if you're too emotionally involved in whatever's going on and having an emotional response, you can't manage it very well. So if you're, if you have a scale from one to 10, one being like, you know, almost ready to fall asleep and 10 being like, Ray Lewis, any dogs in the house getting the team <laughs> fired up to go out to play football. Where are you on that scale, 1 to 10? If there's something rapidly unfolding, I'm probably somewhere around a 7. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to have a level. People need to know that whatever is, is happening or unfolding is urgent. They need to know there's a sense of urgency. They need to know the difference between business as usual and an emergency. So, you know, let's say we're having a planned special event and it starts out, you know, at a very moderate level. But if something starts to happen, if we need to move, whether it's people or resources, we need to do it now. So there's a time to turn it on. But even with turning on that sense of urgency, there still has to be a level of calm from the leadership. So as you think about someone like Ray Lewis, your thinking is like he can still be calm even with the energy or the intensity or the sense of urgency. So for you, you can have a tone or a sense of urgency, but inside, maybe your heart rate isn't spiking and maybe you're still um, pretty even, but you're, there's an intensity to you. Or am I, am I inaccurate with how I'm thinking about that? No, I, I think you're right because I think I know myself well enough. I can't speak for anyone else, but I know that I need to have a level of calm in order to make decisions and to not mismanage details or blow over important details and if everyone around me is excited and i'm excited too it's not going to allow me to do that so there's a saying about setting uh your mindset as a thermostat rather than a thermometer Mm -hmm. um and like you know if you want to be seven a seven all right 70 degrees like that's your temperature and you're not going to let the environment then you know if we set our hopefully if we have a good enough hvac we set we set our temperature and it's not going to change based on what's going on. But a thermometer is going to change. It's going to rise and fall based on the environment and what's going on. Um, so that resonates with you, right? Like being a thermostat rather than a thermometer, 
in an environment so that you can think clearly. That's a great analogy. Absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting because a lot of athletes will talk about that they'll play their best when they're angry. Um, and I've had coaches who will say, I play my best or I coach my best when I'm angry. Um, talk about anger a little bit and, and how anger impacts your performance. I think in my profession, anger doesn't necessarily have a positive impact. And again, I said before about that emotional response, it's really important to be able to, there's a time and a place to manage emotion, but in law enforcement, it's generally while you're not in the moment. And there are a lot of different things in law enforcement that you really need to shelf that because an emotional response at, let's say, a a bad car accident or something that if you were in your own personal world, you may have one reaction. But when you're there, people are looking at you for a level of calm. So whether it's, you know, a car accident, a crime scene, somebody injured, or, you know, we want to talk about it, a demonstration or, or whatever it is, that there's no place for that type of emotional response. So it's really important to have control over that. And any other tools or techniques that you'll use um, or you've seen others use that help them with those uh, moments. Um, I, I started thinking like you guys are in hot thermometer situations and, um, you know, I, it sounds like the mindset is like, hey, this is what I'm going to bring regardless of what it is. Um, but as a leader, if you see somebody that might not be um, where they need to be emotionally, is there anything that you help teach them or work with them on to get them into the space that they need to be to be at their best? Oh, absolutely. And and I would say that I can't say that I never start to feel one of those emotional responses, whether it's anger or whatever. And there's sometimes that I just have to kind of have that moment where I grab myself and I say, you know, knock it off. And I think it's the same thing when it's somebody that falls under you that you see some type of behavior or emotion They might just need somebody to tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, come over here for a second, take a deep breath and just relax a little bit. And I think we all need that at some point. We need somebody else to be able to say, you know, you're getting a little bit excited. And trust me, I've absolutely had people do that to me before. Tell me, you know, take a breath, relax a little bit. And I think that's just something we do in terms of how we handle a lot of these things. That's when it's that training is critically important. So you're used to making decisions. You're used to managing things. Uh, one thing I'm a big fan of is having, whether it's commanders shadow other people, so that way they can get to watch a situation unfolding and decisions being made without being under that direct personal pressure. So they can just watch it. They can essentially audit it and, you know, just kind of sit in the back and, and pay attention to what's going on. And I think that helps. Along with the other basic stuff that helps me personally, exercise, yoga, the kinds of things that you would do before you get into a position, but that just kind of help relax and keep you grounded a little bit. Yeah, there's, I'll just give you another saying. I'm a saying guy, I like sayings. Uh, you don't wait till it rains to build a roof. Right. Um, so like roof building is eating right, sleeping, um, doing all those things. But I would imagine in your job, sleep sometimes gets, you know, if something real is going on, I would imagine sometimes your, your people can be on their feet for hours upon hours and eating uh, nutrition and um, sort of fueling the body so that their mind can be sharp might might get tricky. Have you seen it change at all over the years as there's more and more science around um, sleep and nutrition and how that impacts decision making? And one of the reasons I ask is because I know someone who's working right nearby at University of Maryland's hospital and our physicians 
you know, we put them through um, when they're in residency, like they are there for 18 hour shifts, like long, long shifts. And I actually had a discussion with her recently about like, it's kind of surprising that this day and age where we've shown that a lack of sleep literally can be the equivalent of being drunk. Um, and, and yet our, some of our most important people that are making life and death decisions, you know, in hospitals are on a lack of sleep. Um, and so it's just interesting. And I wonder, like, is there any conversation about how much, how important it is to exercise, to sleep, uh, to, you know, give ourselves the nutrition we need to perform at our best? Absolutely. And I mean, we definitely have those wellness conversations. We recognize the impact of fatigue sleep deprivation, a lot of things that sadly in law enforcement are, you know, naturally part of part of the profession, particularly depending on the role that you have. So I would say that there is definitely more of an emphasis on that. You know, we we have blocks in in service training where we discuss wellness and things like that. There are a lot of police departments that have started doing things like roll call yoga, things that I, I love the concept of just to try to relax people kind of, you know, get them grounded before they start their shift. But unfortunately, there are just times in certain professions, law enforcement is certainly one of them, that people are going to go all day and they're not going to get something to eat or they are going to be on their feet for 15 or 18 hours. We try to do everything that we can to prevent that or to minimize it. But sometimes, unfortunately, it is it does just happen. Yeah, look at the sports world and things have drastically changed in the last 10, 15 years. For example, let's just use the NBA as, as an example. Uh, they travel a lot. So a lot of times they'll get into a city at like 2 or 3 a.m. What they used to do is they used to have 10 a.m. walkthroughs. And part of the reason they wanted to do 10 a.m. walkthroughs was to keep the guys from going out at night. Um, but what they found was the guys were still going out, um, and then they were just zombies in the walkthrough. So I think it was the Boston Celtics that were the first team to say, you know what, we're just not going to do walkthroughs. We'd rather our guys sleep in, and then we can go over the game plan in the afternoon. Um, or before the game or whatever it might be. Uh, and they've adjusted and now they monitor sleep and nutrition. It's just changed drastically. But I think you bring up a really good point where let's just use the NFL. The night before the Super Bowl, you're probably not going to sleep very well. And, you know, I've studied this. Like a lot of people don't necessarily perform their best after a good night's sleep. And actually, I was just listening to some NFL players that have said, that some of their best games were when they were hungover. Um, and so it's not a black and white thing. And I had somebody on my podcast who said, like, some of his best performances have been actually on lack of sleep because he knows he has to be completely um, at his best in those moments because um, it requires more of him. And in golf, there's something called sick golf. A lot of golfers will play their best golf when they're sick. And I think part of it is they let go of their expectation of what they're going to shoot or what they're going to score, and they just play. And they live in that moment, and we use a phrase, they are where their feet are. They, they're just in that present space, and they let go of expectation, and they're just making those decisions without um, putting an overemphasis on emotion or ego um, or things that can sometimes hold them back. Um, so to your point, I think thoughts and feelings are thoughts and feelings, um, and we're going to have emotions and we're going to have thoughts. Uh, the goal is to create space between thoughts and feelings and then action so that we are responding rather than reacting uh, to the thoughts and feelings and, and the emotions. And so when you're talking, that's what, what's coming up for me. And also I would add when you were talking about just, you know, sometimes people's 
saying that they have their best performance when they are slightly sleep deprived. I think there's kind of like a sweet spot balance. There is complete and utter fatigue where I've been where you can barely keep your eyes open and all of the coffee in the world doesn't help. But then there's that place where the night before you're you know, you're visualizing, you're thinking, you know, checking the list. Did I do this? Did I do that? Are we prepared for whatever this event or incident is? And when you wake up the next morning, you're tired, but being a little bit tired sometimes knocks out some of the noise and just lets you focus on what your mission is. How neurotic are you with that preparation? (laughs) It's pretty bad. Tell me about it. I'm very detail-oriented, and especially with uh, whether it's something large-scale or some kind of pre-planned event, I'm just very focused on everything that we needed to do, did we do it, and then what should we have thought of that we didn't, and what do we still need to upgrade, update, improve, review. So uh, my team, who is just outside of this door, I think they usually try to cringe and run away when, when we're running close to an event because they know there's going to be a lot of that and they expect it. And the great thing is the team that surrounds me has been working with me for a while, so they know my thought process. And in fact, even today, we have an event tonight in just a little while. And even today, one of them called me and said, hey, I was thinking we should reconsider this. And it was like he'd read my mind because I was already thinking about the same thing. Would you say it's perfectionist? I can't say it's perfectionist because I I don't think that I'm a perfectionist. I think it's just attention to detail and particularly in public safety, there's not a lot of room for error. And I always want to make sure that we have covered, uncovered and recovered every point to make sure that we are providing the absolute best product that we can in terms of safety and security. What's driving that for you? What's the... What's the driving force for you to say, we must have the attention to detail and it, it, we have to go through and check it twice and check it three times and then adapt it and adjust it? What is driving that for you? I think it's a couple of different things for me. One is just having a lot of pride in what I do and wanting to deliver a good product. But the other piece is I love this city and whether it's some kind of event or whatever it is, I want the people that either live or visit our city to have the best experience that they can. So that way they leave having a, you know, a great perspective on the city and really getting to see all that we have to offer here. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the tone of what's going on in our country uh, with police officers. And, uh, you know, I'm in the sports world. Obviously, what's been going on in the NFL has been well documented. Um, give people a perspective um, of and you can just speak for yourself rather than all police officers, but as you see the temperature and and where things are today, how do you make sense of all that? You know, I think that we're in a challenging time in our country right now. I certainly support that different people have different opinions about things. I spend a lot of my time making sure that I can defend people's First Amendment rights, regardless of what my personal perspective is. And that's really how I look at even the entire sports debate that you're referring to. You know, at the end of the day, if it's a game in my city or an event in my city, regardless of what First Amendment right people are exercising, as long as they're doing it legally and they're not hurting people and they're not damaging property, I'm going to do my job to support their safety, you know, ensure their safety while they're expressing their right. I think one of the concerns I have is uh, 
you know, and I'll just speak from my perspective, is a demonization of, uh, of police officers. And I wonder how that will impact uh, future people that might have otherwise wanted to go into this field and serve. And uh, maybe they had a dad or an uncle or maybe they just had a police officer in their community that impacted them. Um, how do you think about that? And if young people are coming to you and saying, you know, Melissa, I'm interested in becoming a police officer, how do you, what sort of advice do you give them? How, how do you communicate with them? Well, there's no question. This is definitely one of probably when we look back in history, one of the most interesting times in law enforcement and certainly one of the most challenging. I would say that it's still always a great time to become a police officer. And what we've seen right now, our recruitment is actually up. Wow. So I, I is that just in Baltimore or nationally? I can't speak nationally. I can only speak in, in our agency. And, and I truly think that people that are compelled to serve, that are driven to serve and want to help people are still going to do that. And of course, when I see people painting my profession that I've been in for 20 years with a broad brush, you know, it's, it's very painful. It is. I take a lot of pride in what I do. A lot of people in law enforcement do. You know, police officers are one of those professions that they come to work every single day to put their lives on the line for people that they've probably never even met. And that's pretty unique to a couple of professions like police and fire. So I think the majority of the people in those types of professions in law enforcement are great people and continue to want to serve. The ones that are really driven to want to come to our profession will still be here. It'll be a little bit more challenging. It's a different time. You know, 20 years ago, walking into a, a profession of policing was very different than what it is in 2017. But I still think there's a lot of value. I still think that the people that are here right now, despite all of that background noise that you hear with some of the issues nationally and some of the issues that we've seen, they still get a lot of satisfaction by coming in and by helping people and by doing their jobs. I want to end by giving you an opportunity to just promote anything that you're involved with or anything that um, you care most about. I know you're there's involved in the Special Olympics. Um, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, I believe you're on Twitter, right? <laughs> I am, I am. Right? So give us your Twitter handle. Give us uh, Special Olympics. And if you can't find it, it's all good. We'll put it in the show notes so that people can follow you on Twitter. Um, and anything else that you want to uh, make people aware of, uh, I'll just give you a platform to promote whatever it is that you want to promote. Perfect. So I'm trying to pull up my Twitter handle right now, but uh, that may not be so easy. Um, right now, I am actually, oh, here we go. My Twitter handle is at Chief M. Hyatt BPD. So that's me. Uh, right now, I'm actually in the process of fundraising for this year's Polar Bear Plunge. Last year, I super plunged. I'm going to do it again this year. So that's plunging into the Chesapeake 24 times in 24 hours. And last year, we did live video feeds on our Baltimore Police website. And we'll do them every hour again this year. When is it? Uh, it is, I believe it's the third week in January. I'll have to give oh, you the nice, exact date. Nice and warm weather here in Baltimore. It, it will be uh, very crisp, but it, you know, it's a great cause and the athletes of Special Olympics really appreciate it. And the majority of the money that gets raised for Special Olympics is raised by law enforcement. It's really the primary uh, means that law enforcement raises money for. So I am proud to be the team captain for the Baltimore Police Department again and just Really proud that our agency will have a good turnout again for the police plunge this year. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for your time. I know getting you locked in a room without anything coming and any distractions is 
is a challenge. So I'm grateful that nothing hopefully happened in the last 40 minutes or so. Uh, and it was really fun getting to know you in this way. I know we spent time together in other environments, but uh, really getting into your mindset and how you think about things and also how your industry thinks about uh, their mindset is also very cool and very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If there's something rapidly unfolding, I'm probably somewhere around a seven. I think that you have to have a level. People need to know that whatever is, is happening or unfolding is urgent. They need to know there's a sense of urgency. They need to know the difference between business as usual and an emergency. So, you know, let's say we're having a planned special event and it starts out, you know, at a very moderate level. But if something starts to happen, if we need to move, whether it's people or resources, we need to do it now. So there's a time to turn it on. But even with turning on that sense of urgency, there still has to be a level of calm from the leadership.